Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Peter Singer. He's a philosopher, creator of the ethical veganism movement, a bioethicist, Princeton University professor, and an author. Do animals possess the capacity to suffer? And if they do, does that mean that there is a moral case to ensure that we reduce their suffering as much as possible? Thankfully, the ethical case for animal welfare is much more interesting and reasonable than protesters throwing pig's blood over your Canada goose coat would have you believe. Expect to learn just how much progress humans have made in improving animal welfare, which species actually have the greatest capacity for suffering, whether it's possible to do ethical meat farming, how to harmonize ecosystem preservation with hunting practices, Peter's perspective on the current vegan movement and why it hasn't gained global momentum, whether humans are ethically obliged to consume as few calories as possible, whether we need to be worried about AI agents' capacity to suffer, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Singer.
It's nearly 50 years since you first published Animal Liberation. Why re-release the book now? Well, partly because it is uh, nearly 50 years, and although I did revise it in 1990, that's still 33 years. And the book isn't just, you know, timeless philosophy. It, it has some of what I hope is timeless philosophy in it, but it, it's applied to the real world. And the real world includes um, industrial animal production, uh, which is a vast industry that is terrible for animals, the planet, climate, uh, health, everything. Um, but it's changed, of course, that industry has changed over the last uh, 50 or 33 years. Um, I also talk about the use of animals in laboratories, um, and I described experiments that were done the last time I revised the book, so experiments from the 1980s, not very relevant if you want to know what's going on with animals in labs today. So those are two main reasons. Um, lots of people ask me about, well, you know, has have we made progress for animals over the time since you wrote Animal Liberation? Um, I wanted to answer that question. Uh, and I did want to talk about climate change and its relevance to our choice of what we eat, because that obviously wasn't in the 1975 edition. I had no knowledge of climate change, and it was barely in the 1990 edition either. What ways do you think we've made progress with regards to animal welfare, and in which ways have we gone backward? We've made progress in restrictions on some of the worst forms of close confinement of animals in industrial animal production that I focused on in the earlier uh, book. Um, so, for example, laying hens, egg-laying hens were in very small wire cages uh, where they couldn't even stretch their wings. Even if there'd only been one hen per cage, they couldn't have stretched their wings fully, um, but there might be four or five hens in those cages. They have been prohibited in some places. So they've been prohibited in the European Union. The United Kingdom has maintained those prohibitions after leaving the uh, European Union. Uh, some states of the United States where citizens can bring initiatives to the ballot and have a vote on them, uh, California is the largest of those states, uh, have also restricted those cages and as well individual stalls for uh, veal calves and sows uh, where, again, they, they couldn't turn around. The stalls were so tight they could hardly walk a step. Um, so there are some places where those things have been banned. Um, another big form of progress is that there are many more vegetarians and vegans. There were virtually no vegans when in 1975 when the book was published. Uh, there are now, I think, supposed to be 1.3 million vegans in the United Kingdom and varying figures for the United States that... Uh, some some surveys go much higher than that in the U.S. So, you know, uh, there's greater awareness of animals and the idea that animals might have rights is no longer a matter for ridicule as it was when the book first came out. So there's lots of um, ways in which we've gone ahead. The big way in which we've gone backwards is that there are more animals in industrial animal production now than ever before. Uh, and that's uh, at least partly because of the rise of China. And, the fact that China has become a lot more prosperous, you know, which is great. We don't want people to be in extreme poverty. But um, so hundreds of millions of Chinese now use the extra income that they have to buy more meat. Um, and uh, China has been building these enormous factory farms, like 26-story buildings just full of thousands and thousands of pigs, 
obviously never getting to go outside, just living their entire lives uh, on the concrete floors of these buildings. Uh, and because of that uh, and, you know, expansion of other chicken production, uh, uh, fish factory farming, aquaculture as it's uh, called, too nice a word for what it really is, um, you know, so there are far more animals suffering now from human abuse than there were in 1975. I suppose that the increase in human population just means that there is a greater requirement for food. So even if you've had an increase in the proportion of people that are eating vegan or vegetarian, there is overall a significant more number of people who are eating full stop. And regardless what proportion of those may have slightly increased to eat non-animal products, a lot more will be eating animal products. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, that is what's happened. Uh, we in some countries you know uh meat consumption is stable or even falling it's fallen in germany and in sweden in recent years but um it's growing in those countries where meat consumption used to be low um and so we are certainly getting more meat being produced for the people who aren't familiar with the ideas in animal liberation what's the key overview of your argument what makes it uh different or novel or unique well, my argument is not based on the idea that uh, we should love animals or have uh, warm feelings to them. Uh, it's based on the idea that this is a major ethical issue, a major ethical wrong that we are doing to those who are not members of our species. Um, and I argue that the kind of wrong is analogous to the more familiar wrongs that we have done in the past and to some extent are still doing, such as uh, racism and sexism. So in saying that, I'm not comparing the experience of animals in, to those of blacks or women, but I am saying that what these phenomena have in common is that there is a, a dominant group. Um, it might have been those of European descent who were went to Africa to buy slaves or capture slaves and enslave them. It might be uh, men who uh, were able to take power from women and essentially to make women into, into their property. Um, and in this case, of course, it's humans as a whole who do exactly that with animals. Animals legally are property um, everywhere in the world, you know, domestic animals. Uh, and uh, we... Although we may treat our companion animals reasonably well, um, with the animals that we are raising for food or using as tools for research in laboratories, uh, they are just things for us to use. They are means to our ends, and we don't give their interests consideration. And as long as a being can feel pain, that being has interests that we ought to be taking into account, and the fact that they're not members of our species doesn't in any way justify us disregarding those interests. Is the goal here to reduce suffering then? Primarily the goal is to reduce suffering, yes. Um, it's not a matter of rights particularly. It's not specifically talking about the wrongness of killing. It's focused much more on the fact that any being capable of feeling pain uh, has interests, um, particularly an interest in not suffering, and that's an interest that we violate on an absolutely vast scale. We're talking about hundreds of billions of animals um, that humans uh, cause suffering to by the conditions in which they raise them each year. In your opinion, do some animals have a different capacity for suffering? 
Yes, I think the capacities for suffering vary um, with the nature of the species. Uh, that's certainly true. And uh, we don't have great ways of comparing the suffering. Uh, essentially, I suppose we see it more closely in those non-human animals who either are, seem to be like us because they're closely related to us, like chimpanzees and uh, bonobos and, and orangutans and so on, um, or in those animals with whom we live, like dogs and cats, and some people can be very close to horses, of course. So uh, there we recognize it quite well. We don't recognize it nearly so well in um, chickens and fish, for example, but we do now have, and this is another important difference between 1975, we do now have a growing body of scientific research on the capacities of non-human animals to feel pain, which animals feel pain, what kinds of things cause them to suffer. So uh, we know a lot more about that than we, we did before, um, but we certainly don't know everything. And uh, if you move to a species very different from us, like an octopus, um, although the behavior of the octopus shows intelligence and an ability to solve problems, it's not easy for us to know what an octopus is really feeling, but it does seem like it's a conscious being is likely to be feeling pain and likely to be able to suffer. If it's the case that different animals perhaps have different uh, capacities for suffering, does this mean that there's a, a hierarchy with which we should care about the suffering of different animals? A human should be placed above that of a pig, should be placed above that of a vole, should be placed above that of an aphid? Well, um, I wouldn't put it quite like that. Um, I think that there isn't a hierarchy in, in, in the sense that similar amounts of pain are similarly important, whether they're the pain of a, a human or any of the animals you just mentioned. Uh, the question is, what do we regard as similar amounts of pain and how do we know? But um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's a kind of hierarchy of moral status I think that there are just questions that we need to ask about what do different species feel, what do we know about the feel. And, you know, some species may feel pain more acutely than we do. Um, after all, we know that many species have much more acute sense of smell, dogs do. Um, they may have more acute vision. Uh, raptors, um, you know, have incredibly sharp vision. Um, uh, so... It's hard to say, you know, you can't really say, well, humans just feel more pain than any other animal. Um, that's unlikely. Uh, but um, yes, we could say, well, some animals, you know, don't have enough neurons really perhaps to feel pain. So, you know, maybe some of the insects don't feel pain um, and are more kind of like miniature robots, you know, maybe. I, I, I don't know, but, but that's possible. Yeah, I understand. I think... Uh oysters like bivalves and and stuff like that there's some uh, well i guess uh, skepticism around whether or not they can feel pretty much anything at all yes i'm i'm skeptical about oysters because you know pain evolves so as a, a warning signal a signal of of danger um and beings that uh then have this capacity for pain can move away from that danger and escape it but an oyster doesn't move um an oyster just sits on a on a rock, basically, and um, you know, so it's it's hard to see why an oyster would have evolved a capacity for pain. Um, 
given that you know there's there's some cost to having those those capacities you have to have uh, some neural matter and uh, that has to you know be fed and and whatever kept going so yeah i i i don't have any objection to eating oysters um you know because i don't think they're they're sentient beings that's that's a good example of an animal that uh, i don't think can feel pain what would you say to the people who believe that humans are the ones that are guiding this planet why should i care about the suffering of some non-human animal i can care if another human suffers because they're a, a, a complex creature like me but animals are being bred they've always been bred for a very long time for our consumption this is the way that it's always been why should we be bothered about the suffering of other animals well, um, I, I don't think the fact that we uh, are dominant is a reason for discounting their interests. I and mean, that was also true of Europeans, for example, with their more advanced technology, their guns, so on. That, but uh, we don't feel that that justified them in uh, dominating other animals. Uh, as for the fact that you know it's always been like this, that's a, a very uh, common conservative argument. Uh, but you could also, you know, men could certainly have always said that, uh, well, you know, men have been the leaders of societies. Um, you know, w women have needed men's permission to do things to who they marry, to um, to have any possessions even, you know, even in the 19th century in England, uh, a married woman did not own any property. Whatever property she brought into the marriage uh, on the day they were married belonged to her husband. So, um, you know... One could have said, well, it's, it's been like this for a very long time, but we certainly don't think that that justifies uh, that arrangement. Yeah, the uh, marital naturalistic fallacy, perhaps. Right. Yes, I think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, what is the typical life like of an animal that will arrive on somebody's plate in 2023? What are some of the numbers that are involved in sort of some of the experiences? Well, the animals the, uh, who we raise uh, in the largest numbers are, are fish, and I'm not now talking about those fish who are captured wild from the oceans. Um, I'm talking about fish we raise in uh, commercial fish, I wouldn't really call them farms, commercial fish production. Um, and uh, a recent estimate of that is 124 billion fish raised every year. Um, and and they are very closely confined. They are in small, you know, ponds or nets. Um, some of them, like salmon, have an instinct to swim across the oceans, uh, and uh, they don't have any kind of humane slaughter. Uh, the other thing that's worth noting, particularly, uh, you know, suppose you buy a salmon, um, farmed fat salmon, as most salmon are nowadays. Um, you're not responsible just for the life and death of that salmon. That salmon had to be fed and the salmon is carnivorous. So trawlers had to go out in the ocean and catch fish to be ground up, low value fish to be ground up into pellets to be fed to that salmon. And an estimate that I've seen says that every salmon, by the time they're ready to be killed and sold, has consumed uh, 147 other fish in total. So you're responsible for close to 150 fish being killed by the one salmon that you buy. Um, in, next in terms of numbers uh, is chicken. Um, and something like 70 billion chicken are raised worldwide each year. Uh, these chicken are, are sold uh, very young. They've been bred to grow extremely fast. 
so they reach the weight that the chicken you buy in the supermarket um, in something like six weeks. Uh, so really they're babies. But there's a problem with the fact that they are bred to grow so fast, uh, or several problems. Uh, they suffer from bone deformities because they put on weight. They're incredibly obese and their bones are still immature. Uh, and one of the problems is that their legs may collapse under them. Uh, so the industry accepts something like 5% mortality in these young birds. One in 20 will die. And uh, those deaths may be caused by the fact that their legs have collapsed under them. They can no longer walk to food or water. Um, nobody is going to pay them individual in attention. It's just not worth the cost. They're too cheap. There's 20,000 birds in a single shed. Um, somebody might walk through the shed and pick up the corpses after they've died, but uh, they won't get any um, individual help if their legs do collapse under them. And even those whose legs manage to keep them uh, standing until they're ready, that six weeks they're ready to be rounded up for slaughter, um, experts who've looked at this have said that they are in pain for the last two weeks because their uh, body weight, uh, it hurts them just to stand. But they can't really sit down either because they're living on a, a kind of a litter that is full of their droppings of these 20,000 birds and maybe previous batches of birds. Their droppings are just left on the floor of the shed. And um, bird droppings are strongly alkaline. So when they mix with air and with moisture, they form a caustic solution. So if they were to spend long time sitting on this litter, they would actually get uh, caustic burns on their thighs. Uh, so they can't really do that either. Um, you know, one observer, a veterinarian, said it's like somebody with arthritis who's forced to stand, uh, you know, all day all for for the last twenty uh, percent of their life. So I think you know that's really a, a, a again a, a way of bringing up animals that um, does takes no account of their well-being, their suffering. If it did, we wouldn't breed birds that are so unsuited to. Um, to the kind of thing that they are, um, except for the fact that they put on weight quickly and you can make more money out of a faster-growing bird than a slower-growing bird. What comes next? Which animals after the chickens? Uh, well, I think pigs would be the, the next in terms of, of quantity, um, and that's particularly so in China. China is now the world's largest producer of pigs, although countries like the United States have a lot of pigs as well. Um, but uh, pigs are also almost all kept indoors nowadays. Uh, the, uh, they're also bred to grow very fast. They're closely confined in pens. Uh, the pigs that, whose meat, or, you know, pork or ham or bacon you actually buy will have been kept in, in small groups, um, but always indoors and with little room to move around. The, the worst situation is their mothers, the, the breeding sows, whose role is just to produce litter after litter of piglets. Uh, and they are still quite commonly kept in individual crates or stalls, just metal bars, um, too narrow for them to turn around. And uh, uh, they've got no straw to bed down in. They're um, either on concrete floors or on metal slats because that's the easiest and cheapest way to hose off the manure. Uh, so they have nothing to do. These are, you know, uh, pigs are very intelligent animals and uh, comparable to dogs, and yet they're just locked up all day. Uh, they have nothing to do except uh, they do get fed, and then maybe they consume their their food for half an hour or so, uh, and that's it. Um, 
And if anybody kept a dog like that in, in conditions where a dog couldn't run around or even turn around, uh, everybody would say that's cruel, they ought to be prosecuted. But because these are pigs, because they come under commercial farming laws, which typically um, allow these practices, uh, not, as I said, not in the European Union, uh, not in the United Kingdom, not in California, but in the states of the United States where most of the pigs are reared, uh, states like Iowa or Nebraska or North Carolina, there's no such laws preventing them being kept in this way. And in China, there's there's no real animal welfare laws for farmed animals at all. There are some laws relating to how they can be slaughtered, but there's nothing, uh, no national laws about how they can be reared. So uh, I've seen photos of just vast sheds with rows and rows of these sows standing in those stalls. Again, just to reiterate here, your position isn't that we should be cuddly towards animals because they're cute and they're nice and they're supposed to be walking around on a farmyard. It's that there is an associated amount of suffering that goes along with this. And there is no reason that we as humans shouldn't care about the suffering of other animals that are on this planet, especially, I would imagine, animals that we have brought into this world ourselves. Right. We're fully responsible, clearly, for their welfare. We, we do that very deliberately, bring them into the world and then put them in these conditions. Um, and that is really what I'm objecting to. Um, I'll also add that this is not an efficient way of feeding people. Some people will say, well, the world's population is growing. You know, we need to feed them. We've got to do this. But the, the truth is just the reverse. This is a waste of food because when you take animals off the fields where they might get at least some of the food by themselves, then um, you have to feed them. And to feed them, um, I've already mentioned with the fish, you have to go out and catch fish and grind them up for, for the carnivorous fish we, we farm anyway. Um, and for the chickens and pigs, uh, we have to grow grains or grow soybeans, which we could eat ourselves and uh, feed feed them to the animals. And in the process, the animal wastes most of the food value because the animal has to keep their body warm. You burn up calories to, just to keep your body warm. And even if they are very confined and can't really move around, um, they still waste. Uh, it varies a bit according to the species, but if we're talking about feeding grains to cattle, they waste at least 90% of the food value. If we're talking about pigs, they probably waste something like 60 to 70% of the food value. If we're talking about chickens, because they grow so fast, they're a little more efficient. They perhaps waste two-thirds of the food value. We get one-third back. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's not a good way of feeding the world. It's not a good way of preserving the planet. What about the role of milk or eggs or cheese? Right, yes. Well, um, the egg-laying hens, uh, again, uh, in those places I mentioned, the European Union and some a few states of the United States, uh, they can't be kept in the wire cages that otherwise, say, the majority of US hens are kept in, uh, these very narrow wire cages where they can't stretch their wings. Um, and uh, uh, so, but even, even where they're not kept in cages, they can still be very crowded. Um, and, you know, I think it, you could say that in genuinely free-range egg production, where the eggs, where the hens are actually allowed free to roam outside um, and have grass that they can you know, use, and they can peck at insects in the grass or uh, look for worms or something like that, 
you know, yes, you can do that and you can produce eggs. They're more expensive, but you can produce eggs that way. But the overwhelming majority of eggs come from hens who never go outside. Um, and as I say, in, in many countries, the majority are still in cages. Uh, with, with dairy, um, there has, again, been a big move to intensify dairy to produce, have large dairies. The, the traditional dairy farm maybe had 50 cows, maybe 100, 200 cows would have been a decent-sized dairy farm, um, and they were able to go out each day on, on grass and graze, and that's not too bad a life in itself. Um, but the larger farms with a 1,000 or more cows, uh, they essentially keep them in, in stalls and they bring food to them. But the other big problem with, with uh, dairy products, which many people don't really think of, is that the dairy cows have to be made pregnant at regular intervals to keep producing milk. So roughly every year, the cow will give birth to a calf and uh, the calf is taken away from the cow within hours of birth because otherwise the calf will drink the milk that the producers want to sell. So um, the separation of the cow and, and her calf is a painful process uh, for both of them. Um, there's a very strong bond between cows and their calves. And, uh, you know, dairy farmers have acknowledged that sometimes when they've taken the calf away and then the cow calls for that calf for hours and hours and sometimes even when the cow comes, if, if the calf was taken away at a particular spot and the cow is taken past that spot, the cow will stop and will call for her calf. She remembers the calf being taken away. Uh, and the fate of the calf isn't good either. If, if, if the calf is female, she may be raised as a dairy cow herself. But if the calf is male, she's likely to go, oh, sorry, he is likely to go into the veal industry um, or possibly be raised for hamburger. But dairy, dairy uh, cows you know, aren't really very good for meat production. They're not bred for that. I imagine so, that um, male chicks are similarly useless. The male chicks of the laying breeds, the egg-laying breeds, yes. Um, and they are generally just thrown into a kind of a grinder, which uh, grinds them up um, immediately after they're, after they're, they're hatched. Then their the sex is selected. The females are put on one side and the males get ground up. There are some moves in uh, Europe to develop technologies that um, either enable you to sex the egg and therefore destroy the egg before the, the chick is hatched, or even um, enable it, make it possible that the hen will only lay eggs of females. Um, and that would solve the problem of the male chicks. Uh, and I think Germany and France are, are trying to legislate, at least for the uh, sexing in the, in the egg rather than the chick, to prevent the suffering of these millions of male chicks that get ground up. Uh, but in the United States, that isn't being done yet. And in, you know, here where I'm in Australia, it's not being done either. I imagine that one of the most common objections after you put forward a case like that. And, you know, by the sounds of things, the life of these animals isn't tremendously enjoyable. I don't think that anyone, even the most ardent meat eater, 
would say, yeah, I'm really proud of being part of a system that causes animals to go through that kind of situation. But there are ways that we can do this. We can look at regenerative farming. We can ensure that chickens not only are free range, but have a natural range. They've got tons of hectares that they can go over. Is there a problem with eating an egg if it's been created by a chicken that's had a fantastic life, that's been looked after, that's been cared for, protected from foxes? The same thing goes for, I'm sure there is a way that you can get milk from a cow that doesn't involve the emotional turmoil that they go through. In your opinion, are there any ways that you can do ethical animal farming? There are ways that I think can be regarded as ethical. Um, you can have a debate about whether they are as ethical uh, ethical enough to eat those products. But but I think the debate is, is an ongoing one and a reasonable one. So um, while I'm not going to say I endorse those forms of animal production, I am going to say I don't have a, a you know a conclusive objection to saying that they're wrong or that they shouldn't be done. So for people who want to continue to eat animal products, if they conscientiously search out those products, um, I'm prepared to say yes, they're they're trying to live an ethical life, uh, and and that's a reasonable attempt to do so. Um, they'll probably be able to succeed with with free range eggs, depending a little bit where they're living. Um, but you know there are free range eggs being sold in most countries, labelled as such. Uh, you may need to check up on how many hens there are per hectare or acre, uh, but um, that's possible. Uh, don't kid yourselves that the hens will have a long life because once they stop laying, which is well before the normal they would normally die, um, they will be killed. I don't think many commercial producers will keep feeding hens who lay no eggs. Um, the, the male chicks may still get killed. That's another issue. Um, and uh, But with the dairy products, uh, it's really, really hard to find dairy producers who leave their cow, their cow, the calves with their cows. Um, in uh, Animal Liberation Now, I think I mentioned three of them, one in England, one in Germany, and one here in Australia, uh, the dairy products are a lot more expensive. Um, uh, but um, yeah, if people can do that, um, then okay. Uh, still question of if, if, if the cows are producing male calves, uh, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to keep them? Um, but at least the, the Australian producer that I've had some contact with um, uses uh, sperm selection. They use artificial insemination for producing the calves and they select the sperm and they get very, very few male calves. So that's one way of dealing with that. Um, I think their milk is about three times as expensive as uh, milk from standard commercial producers. So you have to be prepared to pay for it. But if you really want to continue to eat animal products and you want to have an ethical relationship with animals, um, I guess that's one way of doing it. Think about how much more tasty all of that morality is going to be, though. That's really going to add on to the flavor profile. Yeah, and I think people will appreciate it more. That's true. You know, um, I'm old enough to uh, remember when I was a child when chicken was a treat because it was expensive. And, uh, you know, we, in my family, you, you got it on your birthday. Um, and, you know, it did, it, it did seem something special then. Um, I don't think many people think that chicken is a special treat now. Um, but maybe if you only eat animal products from really animals who have really good lives and are killed without pain and suffering, uh, you would eat these animal products quite rarely and you would think of them as a special treat and you would enjoy them more perhaps. 
One of the uh, progressions that I've seen from some of the more uh, militant corners of the veganism movement is saying that owning any type of pet would be something which is unethical as well. I think a lot of people struggle to understand how uh, you know, owning a dog that most people see not only as just uh, something that they care about, but literally a part of the family. These people, you know, treat them as if they're essentially a surrogate child. In fact, some people uh, decide not to have children in place of a ton of dogs or cats. What is your position on the owning of pets? Uh, I don't discourage people having, uh, I prefer to think of them as companion animals, but I don't discourage people from living with companion animals. Um, uh, I don't like, you know, you said owning them. Well, that is the legal situation, of course, now. I'd, I'd rather think of them as, as you said, as, as members of the family and companions. Um, I, I don't think you would be able to own them. In the same but, way that you um, don't own your son or daughter. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Um, but uh, I do think that, you know, many people with companion animals do give them good and rewarding lives. Obviously, not everybody, but but many do. And it's also, I think, important for our understanding of non-human animals. Uh, I already mentioned earlier that people who live with dogs or cats have a sense that, uh, you know, what they're like, that they're complex beings, that they not only feel pain if you tread on their paws, but they have, uh, you know, emotional suffering when they're, they're bored, when you leave them alone at home, at least dogs are. Um, and, uh, you know, they welcome you when you come home and they love to go for a run. And there's a lot of things that we learn about animals through being close to uh, a dog or a cat uh, or a horse. Um, and and that has led many people on to appreciating that the way they're treating or the way they're complicit in the treatment of uh, pigs and, and cows and chickens uh, is wrong. Um, one of the uh, perhaps you know the leading animal advocate uh, and strategist of the animal movement in the United States in the last quarter of the 20th century was a man called Henry Spira, who um, was a close friend of mine, and and he was somebody he was always like for progressive causes. He marched for civil rights in the American South. Um, he uh, was a merchant seaman and joined a a reformist union to try to improve conditions for workers. Uh, after the Cuban Revolution, he went there to see it himself, uh, what was happening. Um, but he had no thoughts about animals until a friend of his who was going overseas said, hey, look after my cat. I've got no one else to look after my cat. Here's, here's, here's a cat. Um, and, and the cat basically charmed him, as he says. And uh, suddenly he had this epiphany that uh, here he was patting one animal and sticking a knife and fork into another um, and uh, was there something wrong with that? And uh, he happened to come across my animal liberation at the same time, and uh, that combination started him off uh, on a career that really improved lives for many animals. Have you considered the suffering of wild animals and whether it's our duty to somehow step in and ameliorate that? I have considered that. Um, I would say I was prompted to consider it by some other philosophers who started thinking about that issue. Um, I didn't really think much about it in the early uh, versions of the book. But um, I have uh, a few pages about it in Animal Liberation now. Uh, I certainly think that we should consider the interests of wild animals, and there are relatively simple things that we can do. Um, the largest number of wild animals we harm is, again, fish, and uh, we harm them by hauling them out of the ocean in uh, 
and letting them die in cruel conditions because you know, they will suffocate in nets, for example, or um, die slowly. So, uh, and, and we're overfishing the oceans. So, avoiding uh, wild caught fish is good for wild animals and good for the sustainability of the oceans. Um, and I think also things like um, trying to install uh, glass that birds won't fly into, that's another major killer of animals. Uh, and I think, you know, if you do have a cat, um, keeping your cat indoors at least at night, um, if not all the time, depending a bit where you live, is important for wild animals because although, you know, many cat lovers deny it, um, there's very strong evidence that pretty much any cat uh, left outside, especially at night, becomes a predator and kills uh, you know, small animals, small birds, uh, small rodents. Um, so, yeah, keeping, keeping your cat indoors at night is a good way of reducing the suffering of wild animals. If that's the case and you lived in an area, let's say, that was overrun with wild pigs, there are some places in America that have this problem and some people get in big helicopters with 50 cal machine guns on the side of them and just chew through reams and reams and reams of animals. How do you balance the ethical decision there? If these animals were left, they would destroy an ecosystem, which downstream from that has a ton of other animals that live in it. The only uh, interjection that we can make is to kill them. But by doing that, you're killing an animal in a pretty inhumane way on the side of a gunship loaded with a belt-fed machine gun. Yeah, um, we have similar problems with wild animals in Australia too. Uh, look, I, I respect the environmental values that uh, we want to preserve. And uh, it, it's our fault for having introduced these uh, non-native species and uh, they've escaped or they've sometimes they've been deliberately released to, to breed and, and we've created this havoc. Um, it's obviously not the fault of the pigs, but um, I agree with those who think that uh, you know there are at least some situations where we can't just let it go. Um, I would like to see more humane ways of dealing with the problem than the helicopter gunships that you mentioned. Uh, so uh, ideally, we would put some research into developing uh, a bait that will sterilize the animals and therefore that would deal with the problem more humanely over oh, the long yeah. term. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, in a very small scale, that can be done. There's a couple of islands uh, in off the, the Delmarva Peninsula in Maryland, uh, Chincoteague and Assateague, I think they're called, um, where, where there was a problem with feral horses, uh, feral ponies, and, and people care more about horses than they do about pigs. So uh, when people said we need to shoot all these ponies, uh, people said, no, you can't do that. Um, and then they they did find ways of, of sterilizing them. Um, but, uh, you know, on a large scale over large territory, uh, you probably can't, can't do that very easily at the moment. But, uh, yeah, you might be able to develop a bait that the pigs would take, that the native animals would not take, um, and that would sterilize them. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating decision criteria there. So I got introduced to your uh, position probably about four or five years ago from a friend. And I am a meat eater. I still am now. But it's been 
by far for me the most compelling consideration around my consumption of animals. Where is it being sourced from? How do I feel about eating it? Even little things. I know that as a utilitarian, this probably doesn't count, but having a little bit more reverence for the food that you eat and for where it's come from um, has has been something that was that was changed upon understanding a more moral and ethical framework as opposed to a screechy person who was shouting about how terrible you are because and then some placard that gets waved in your face it seemed like a much more scalable um uh, way of thinking about animal welfare given the fact that the net outcome that you're looking for is to just reduce animal suffering and you've been talking about this for nearly 50 years and are now revisiting it again what do you think about the modern iteration of the veganism movement and its sort of many hydra-headed uh, version of, of of how it's progressed? What have you observed that's been that's been interesting being on the front lines of this for so long? Yeah, there are a lot of different tactics used, um, and uh, it's hard to know which tactics are the most effective. That's a, a difficult problem in in social science research to work out what influences people. Um, I, I'm perfectly clear that, that really violent actions just put people off and give give the whole movement a bad name. And I'm glad that they seem to have ceased. There was a period in the 80s when some activists were using violence, and, you know, relatively little. I mean, there was a lot of publicity about it. Um, the number of people who were hurt by it um, was, you could count on the fingers of your hand, I think. Um, but... Uh, Still, it, it was not a good uh, thing to be doing for an ethical movement. Um, and the sort of in-your-face thing, I guess, you know, yes, people find it offensive. We don't know whether it gets them to think in the end or not. But um, I've been impressed by the recent use of uh, what's called open rescue techniques, where people have gone into factory farms and uh, videoed what's going on there. And if they've seen particularly ill uh, animals or particularly maltreated animals that looked like they were not going to survive very long anyway, they've rescued them, they've taken them out, they've taken them to a vet. Um, uh, if, if, if the vet says, uh, no, this animal isn't going to live, then uh, they put them down. Um, but otherwise, they treat them to try to help them. And then they show uh, the video footage and they show the individual animals because then people can focus on individuals. Um, and it's interesting that the uh, uh, there's been a move to prosecute these people um, because, after all, they are taking property. property, pigs, pigs or chickens, whatever they are, they're property. Um, and there have been a, a couple of recent cases where the prosecution has badly backfired. Uh, so uh, um, two, two rescuers took pigs from a farm in Utah and... Uh, they were put on trial on felony theft charges. I think they could have spent five years in, in prison. Uh, and they didn't deny that they'd taken the pigs. Um, but the jury, and, and this is, you know, Utah is a fairly conservative state, and they were in a rural part of the state. You'd expect to be more conservative, more farm-friendly. But the jury refused to convict them. Uh, and then there was a second case in California after that too. So it's a way of getting the randomly selected members of the public on the jury to express their view of what's going on in these places. And it's clear that they don't like it. 
In your opinion, is it moral to convince people to become vegan through an immoral method? So something like uh, lying to them or emotional coercion or something like that? Uh, no, I don't think it is. And I think it's likely to backfire because, uh, you know, there will be people who will expose what's going on. And what, Let's uh, say that it didn't, in this situation, let's say it didn't backfire. Let's say that the outcome was that nobody got rumbled, but en route to doing it, it was a, an immoral uh, means to a moral end in your view? Well, uh, as a utilitarian, I, I do think that it is sometimes justified to do things that would not be right in themselves, but when they lead to importantly good ends, um, can be justified. So if you're talking hypothetically, um, I think that could be justified. If you're talking about, would I advise uh, a vegan activist to use those methods? The answer is no, because you know we can't specify that it is only going to have the good consequences and not have the bad consequences. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting an interesting consideration and one that I've spoken to a bunch of different friends about. You mentioned before we discussed this um, kind of spectrum, I suppose, between factory farming and and regenerative farming and living at home with a chicken that lives in the backyard or whatever. It seems to me that um. Factory farming is the thin end of the wedge that, again, most people that hear the stories about the kind of experiences that you've just described from animals, very few of them are going to be ardent, proud, flag-waving supporters of it. Um, it does seem like that gets spread out to, in to cover absolutely everything, that it's not just the factory farming, it's also the regenerative farming. And lots of people, I think, are changing uh, their eating habits because of a, a fear of environmental impact as well as just what's happening to animals and, and emotive imagery and stuff like that. In your opinion, do you think it's a almost a failing of moral philosophy to have sufficient impact that you need to rely on concerns about climate change and so on and so forth? Should it be the case that we are able to motivate humans morally without having to layer on top multiple different arguments? It should be the case that the argument against inflicting suffering on animals is uh, sufficient to persuade people. Um, yes, ideally that would be the case. Um, when I wrote and released uh, an, uh, the first version of Animal Liberation in 1975, I thought that this argument was so obvious and compelling that it would have that effect. Um, that was a bit naive. Um, but... Uh, um, Ideally, it would. If we were more rational, if we were more moved by ethics, um, more ethical, I'm sure it would. Uh, but um, you know, in saying that, um, I think the arguments about not eating meat because of climate change are also ethical arguments. Um, they're not appealing to self-interest, really, because you know, from self-interest point of view, what I would like is to keep doing what I like, enjoy doing and hope that everyone else will stop doing these things that will have bad effects. Tragedy uh, of the, the commons, yeah. Yes, the tragedy of the commons, exactly. So um, so to, to avoid the tragedy of the commons, you either need government regulation um, or you need individual ethical action. We don't have government regulation that's taking the right stand on uh, industrial animal production yet, um, so we need ethical action. Why do you think it is the case that the argument you put forward 50 years ago that you thought as soon as everybody hears this, evidently they're, they're going to change their ways. This is going to be the beginning of a kind of diet virus that's going to cause everybody to become ethical. Why, why, why hasn't that convinced more people? I think it's just that uh, 
eating habits uh, go very deep and are hard to change. Um, I mean, the contrast here would be with some other ethical change like um, the dramatic improvement in attitudes towards uh, gays and bisexual people and lesbians and so on, um, which, you know, I don't think many people, say in the year 2000, I don't think many people thought that within the next 20 years, uh, a lot of countries would accept not only that we shouldn't prosecute uh, gays for their sexual acts, but that we should allow them to marry in this, exactly the same way as we allow heterosexuals to marry. Um, that was a dramatic change, but there's less at stake for, you know, most people don't have very much at stake. They have an attitude, but they don't feel I'm going to have to change my lives, my life. Yeah, it's not saying that you need to be gay. It's saying that you need to allow right, other people exactly. to be gay. It's not saying you need to marry someone of your, your same sex. If people tried that, they would not get very far. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, the, the, the animal movement, the case that I was putting forward, was saying you need to change what you eat. Um, and that's much more difficult you know, for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, may, there may be some sort of we, we evolved to have a taste for meat because that's a very dense nutrient that was available to our ancestors and those that ate it did better than those that didn't. But, of course, that's not the case anymore today. It's, it's more of a health risk. Um, or it may be that it's, it's embedded in our culture and, you know, we think, oh, but if I stopped eating meat, I wouldn't have the traditional Thanksgiving turkey or uh, whatever other, you know, wouldn't slaughter the, the, the sheep for the feast of the eyed. Um, so, so meat is, is culturally embedded in, uh, in ways that make it harder to change. Uh, and there's also that sense of a lot of people say, well, you know, their family eats meat. What are they going to do when they go and eat with them? Um, they, are they going to tell their friends that they should stop eating meat? Isn't that being a bit self-righteous? Um, it's, you know, we're fairly conformist in that. Uh, there are some people who are prepared to say, no, I'm going to break with that tradition and uh, be a, an, a non-conformist. But I think there are a lot of people who don't want to be among the leaders of the change and would rather follow than lead. Given that vegetables and vegan products, no matter how correctly they're sourced, are also associated with an increase in death and suffering of animals, stuff that happens just during harvesting and so on and so forth, it's inevitable that that's going to end up happening. Does this not mean that there is a moral obligation for every human to try and limit their calorie consumption to as little as possible. I shouldn't eat one calorie more than I should. I should also eat a vegan diet, but that vegan diet shouldn't be a single calorie over because as soon as I do, that is unnecessarily impacting animal life upstream. I think if you really start worrying about every calorie, you're going to go crazy and you're not going to be very effective in doing anything else. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's some sort of saintly ideal, if you like. Um, it's similar to arguments that I've put forward in relation to global poverty. Um, uh, again, you know, a long time ago when I was um, perhaps a little too much of a, um, a demanding uh, ethicist that uh, we should give away all of our assets uh, until we reach the point of marginal utility and until we reach the point at which sharing something more, giving something more to a person in extreme poverty would lower us to the same level of poverty or suffering as the person we were helping. Um, mm -hmm. That's also, I think, um, you know, 
not a realistic ethic to put forward. And as a consequentialist, I want to put forward ethical views that will achieve the maximum benefits. So I no longer make that argument in terms of, of how much we should give away. I suggest instead, uh, say in my book, The Life You Can Save, I suggest um, more reasonable percentages of incomes that scale up as you earn more. And uh, similarly, I think in terms of you know, trying to get people to move towards uh, a, a vegan diet or at least a more conscientiously ethical diet that uh, has concern for what animals are experiencing, I think saying you can't eat a single calorie over what you need to maintain your body is uh, is, is not going to work. For the people like me who aren't um, philosophy-pilled, talking about the blending of the position of a utilitarian with that of a consequentialist, am I right in thinking that a utilitarian would be looking to maximize the utility from whatever the choice is or the framework is that's being put forward, but the consequentialist understands that there are real-world restrictions on that that need to be filtered through? So it's, is it almost like a blending of the two positions? No, I don't think that's quite right. I think that utilitarians will also want to produce the best consequences. Uh, you know, utilitarianism is a version of consequentialism. Consequentialism is the genus, utilitarianism is the species. And the difference between them is not um, their attitudes to what's realistic or what's not. It's their attitude to what are the consequences that we want to maximize, that we want to focus on. The utilitarian will say the consequences are uh, well-being, the well-being of all of those capable of having a well-being, which means, in my view, all sentient creatures, and we want them to suffer as little pain as possible, to, to suffer as little, uh, to have, experience as much pleasure, to be as happy as possible. That's the utilitarian view. The consequentialist will say, I agree that whether an action is right or wrong depends on its consequences, but I don't think that well-being is the only consequence that matters. I think it's, for example, it's good that people should have greater knowledge, whether they use that knowledge to enhance well-being or not. I think it's important that people should be free, whether they use their freedom in ways that enhance well-being or not. Um, and you know, then there's a whole list, and, and that's the thing about consequentialists in general, once you move away from specifically utilitarian consequentialists. There are about 50 things that people have put on lists that they think of as intrinsically good and they want to maximize, and everybody then takes their pick of these 50 things uh, as to which are the ones that I want to maximize and and why. And and then you have to say, well, are you sure this is really good in itself? Are you sure, like with knowledge, are you sure knowledge isn't good because it can help us to improve well-being? Are you sure that just having additional knowledge is good even if it has no further consequences? Those are the kinds of debates that, that you then have to have. Could you imagine a situation in which a human who was brought into the world of uh, ethical veganism and was talking about this sort of stuff on the internet, let's say, or, or, or on any kind of platform, but was struggling to eat a sufficiently well-balanced diet that allowed them to maximize the impact that they could have on the world existed. So this person believes in the precepts of it and is talking about it online and is doing it in a, a very compelling way and encouraging other people to consider their approach to what their diet looks like too but their individual um, challenges that they're facing with their own health mean that they then consider moving from a vegan to a meat-based diet. Now, whilst they're on this meat-based diet, they're going to continue talking to the world and encouraging as many people as possible. 
would it be uh, an ethical position for that person to hold to say, look, I'm going to do something personally, which I would see as unethical or immoral in order to encourage and maximize the impact that I can have on the rest of the world? Yeah, I've actually had, that's not a hypothetical. I've, I've had people come to me and say things somewhat similar to that. Um, I think, you know, it took me a while to accept this because I've always felt great on uh, vegetarian and, and vegan diets um, and uh, others that I know have too. But um, there are some people who seem to have a, a, a different constitution and who don't do well, uh, certainly not on an exclusively vegan diet. So if you are one of those people, um, but you see the point of the cause, um, yeah, I, I would say to preserve your health and to maintain the ability to be uh, an active force for good in the world, um, you should seek out those animal products that um, will be sufficient to maintain your, your health and vigor and will do the least harm to animals, to the climate, and so on. So... Um, for example, we were talking earlier about free-range eggs from, from hens who are genuinely free-range and have grass to range around on. Uh, um, I think that's, that's, that's an example of something that I would see as doing minimizing harm, providing some animal protein, uh, and maybe that's enough for some people. You know, If it's not, then they need to look further, but they always need to think about who is, where can I get this product in a way where the animals are really cared for well, uh, where the greenhouse gases are not great or are offset. Um, so, yeah, those are the sorts of questions, and I uh, appreciate that a, a small number of people may need to do that to keep active and vigorous. Loads of muscles, just tons. Well, generally, you don't like need 50 muscles, muscles a this, day. Uh, <laughs> like oh, muscles. I see those muscles, right. Sorry, yes. I thought you were talking about uh, eating enough animal products to build up their muscles. And in fact, no, there's no, plenty the of bodybuilders and athletes. Bivalves, yes. Yeah. You could do that. Yes, that would be a uh, Go to town. Go to town on the bivalves. <laughs> okay. So um, obviously one of the things that you've done, uh, nearly 50 years between both uh, between this version and, and the first version of this, the cultural climate has changed an awful lot during that time. The type of arguments that can be made that are accepted widely uh, or even accepted not so widely, uh, have changed a good bit. What were some of the um, elements that you had to remove from the book in order to make it more palatable for a 2023 audience? Well, um, a, a very glaring example of that was that in the first version of the book, um, I wanted to make the point at the beginning that this book was not written for animal lovers and that I didn't consider myself an animal lover. Uh, and that was raising a major ethical issue. And to make that point, I used a parallel between uh, this issue and, uh, or, or the way that I was approaching this issue, and the way that uh, whites in the 1950s and 60s, who were supportive of the movement against uh, racial segregation in the American South, um, would go down to march with uh, blacks in the South for, you know, against segregation of schools or universities or buses or restaurants or whatever. And uh, to make the point that I, you know, I was not an animal lover, I said, uh, I quoted uh, an epithet that was often used by white racists, so uh, against these, by white Southern racists, against these Northerners who came down to help them. And they used the N-word to suggest that they loved 
the people that they were helping. Um, and I and I had that in, in the first edition. I had that word in quotes. Um, it was a quote, and I said it was a racist who was saying this. There was no way at all in which I was endorsing the use of that word. Um, but now that word has become such a strong taboo that you can't even use it in quotes in that sense. And um, so the editor uh, indicated that, that that had to go, and I accepted that view. <laughs> yeah, I think if if no matter how um, clean you want to or how um, appropriately you want to try and represent the original material, you're inevitably going to have to do that. There's a couple of other bits as well that I'd, I'd seen um, to do with uh, uh, men getting uh, the ability of men to have equal abortion rights or the equal um, yeah. was it access to opportunity, something like that. Yes, the, that's right. I was saying that. Yes, I was saying that to say that animals have rights didn't mean that they had the right to vote or something like that um, any more than um, to say that uh, there's a right to abortion means that men uh, have equal abortion rights with women or some, something like that. I, I can't remember the exact wording. Um, yes, and uh, of course, now you can't refer to pregnant Fraud. women. You should refer to pregnant people. Uh, as the Fraught conversation. I still so, find I mean, that a little strange, I must say. But, uh. <laughs> well, thinking about this situation, and this is what particularly fascinated me about it, you're a man who is famous for his cold analytical approach and you have had to remove some very powerful arguments that I've heard friends use. I've heard friends use that exact argument about the access to abortion and, and, and men's rights to abortion. You've had to remove some powerful arguments for the life of animals because of modern sensitivities. Is that, I mean, what, what do you think that says about our current ethical position in the modern world, well, I think it says that p perhaps we're we're too sensitive um, about some of these issues, and we we should be more prepared to face some of these realities. But um, I went along with the editor's suggestions on on these issues because this book is about a particular cause, a particular issue. I want to attract as wide support as I possibly can because of the urgency to stop what we're doing to. Uh, as I say, hundreds of billions of sentient creatures um, and damaging our climate. Um, and I didn't want to get distracted by a small side issue where people would say, oh, hijacked you know, no, I'm not, not, not going to buy that book. I'm not, yeah, not going <laughs> to read that book. You, you've got to decide which wars you can fight. Right? <laughs> I mean, uh, you can't fight all the wars at the same time. Yeah, I understand. So one other um, modern discussion that probably wasn't a consideration when you first wrote this book was AI. And over the last six months, we've seen a huge resurgence in discussions about it. It kind of really lulled. You know, Nick Bostrom's superintelligence was 2014, something like that, I think. And that really kind of kicked off this concern about paperclip maximizers and alignment problems and mas machine extrapolated volition. And then it went quiet for forever because it didn't seem like AI was making any progress. And then ChatGPT comes out and everything goes ballistic again. Have you considered the potential for AI agents to suffer and our obligations to them? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have thought about that. And in fact, uh, with some others, I'm organizing a Princeton uh, a conference at Princeton University in uh, October, um, which will include that topic, as well as talking about the impact that AI is having on animals, which is significant because uh, 
some industrial farms are now being basically run by AI rather than you know by individual humans in the same way. Uh, plus, of course, there's all these decisions and dilemmas about self-driving cars and do you program them to swerve to avoid the dog or only to swerve to avoid the child? Um, so uh, I have been involved in AI ethical questions and uh, my answer to the question you asked about uh, could there be conscious AI, could AI be a sentient being? Um, and if so, what would its moral status be? I think the answer is, in principle, AI could be sentient or conscious. Uh, I don't think we have got close to that yet. I think that ChatGPT uh, sort of fools us into thinking we're chatting with a sentient being, but when we understand what it's actually doing and how it's regurgitating some of the material that it's fed on and how it adjusts, uh, I think we realize that there's no reason to postulate any consciousness. But if, if that did happen, and in principle it's possible to happen, then we would need to give that AI a, a moral status, um, at, at least like that of animals. And depending on its cognitive abilities, maybe it would be closer to, to that of um, most humans. Have you considered or thought of a way in which an AI agent would be able to convince you that it was having a felt sense of an experience because you can, I mean, five-year-old girls have got dolls that will cry if they're not picked up sufficiently frequently. Nobody is mistaking the doll for having the felt experience of being lonely, but you know, you roll it all the way down and it seems to me, I haven't thought about this a lot, but it seems to me that it would be very difficult to, separate out AI agent performing what emotions look like from conscious agent experiencing them. Basically, is every AI just a pea zombie in disguise with with circuit boards? Uh, so far, um, but uh, yeah, the, the question of how we're going to know is, is really an, an interesting and important question because uh, you know, many years ago, Alan Turing said, uh, if you can have a conversation with the robot um, and you don't know whether you're having a conversation with a robot or with a real person, then we should assume it's conscious. But that is the case with chat GPT. I mean, you Absolutely. can fool people into thinking that. So, uh, I uh, and yet, as I say, once you understand what it's actually doing, what it's programmed to do, I think you don't think it's, it's, it's conscious. Now, um, the problem is that these AIs are learning all the time, developing all the time, and I think we're going to get it into the situation where they're going to be producing other AI, right? That they're, they're, they're getting yep. to be smart enough to design other systems. And uh, then we won't really know how the other system works in the way that we might know about the ones so far. And... Uh, It'll be very difficult to, to tell whether to tell whether it is conscious or not, because um, it's not simply a matter of, of saying you know looking at the at the algorithms there, because because it's it's learning things and developing. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm not really an expert in this field. Um, I've talked to some people who have more expertise than me, um, and I've started to see the difficulty of this problem. I had Stuart Russell on the show. Mm. 18 months ago, and he wrote Human Com- He's written everything. He wrote literally the textbook on AI. It's in some ungodly number of languages. And um, he was saying, 
if you were a lot of the time, uh, YouTube will be asked, open up the algorithm, show us what the algorithm's doing, or tell us, tell us how the algorithm works. And especially when you're looking at something like YouTube, his argument was the engineers at YouTube don't know what the YouTube algorithm's doing. It's got right. its own optimization um, function that it is aiming for. It is trying to maximize time on site and click through and watch time. And they just set this bunch of parameters and then it's run away and it is now reinforcing, okay, let's do this a little bit more. Let's change for that. Select for this kind of video. Once someone does this, then do this. And you realize that, yeah, I mean, if you've got recursive self-improving AI that are creating either improving themselves or creating further agents that are their own uh, progeny in one form or another, I mean, you definitely don't know two degrees removed, but even just one degree removed, what you've created after a sufficiently long amount of time learning is probably not really going to resemble what it was that you made it in the first place. So yeah, getting in there and going, oh, well, you know, we'll just see where's the emotion algorithm we didn't put the emotion algorithm in here therefore it can't you know the sadness the sadness code doesn't exist within this i think it's a a really really and i fundamentally to me that seems to be the most interesting and the most challenging question that's going to come up about this at what point are we going to say that an an ai agent claiming consciousness sentience the ability to suffer etc etc are we ever going to know? Because the only reason really that you believe that I have the capacity to suffer, that if you poke me with a pin, that I'm not just saying ow performatively because I know that that's what you would do and does everybody else on the planet is just some big robot that's been here to Truman show, <laughs> Truman show Peter Singer's life f- for the last however many decades. The only reason is that we, we kind of have this faith right between us and we, we, we believe that that's the case. Very, very difficult with no proof. No one has ever been an AI agent that has a felt sense of this, and we can't use our theory of mind to to try and believe it. I think that's going to be I think that's going to be the biggest challenge that we face. Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge. I agree, and I don't have an answer to it. Um, <laughs> Come on, Peter. I, I don't, I don't know what anyone does, but I say AI don't. AI liberation now. That's what I'm here <laughs> for. That's what I've come for. Um, right. Well, look, Peter Singer, ladies and gentlemen. Peter, I really appreciate you. You have got a tour of some kind that you are doing that people can attend. Where is that and when's it happening? I do have a speaking tour, yes. I'm um, going to be speaking in Washington, D.C. on May the 26th, in Los Angeles on the 29th, in San Francisco uh, on the 30th of May, and in, in New York City on June 1st, and in London on June 4th. Um, and you can find that if you Google uh, an evening with Peter Singer and maybe put in Think Inc, uh, Think and then INC, which is the organization that is organizing the tour, you'll get information and tickets. And I would love to see you all there and uh, get a chance to speak to you and to uh, hear your questions. Peter, I really appreciate you. Thank you for today. Thanks very much. Thanks.